Now, on this Invest Talk podcast, Justin Klein listens to your questions. What does it mean when a company's share price falls to cheap prices and executive insiders don't buy more? My question is, how much of your portfolio should you put into like ETFs and mutual funds? I had a question about Dutch Bros. It's going to be a new IPO. And provides unbiased answers. I think the bet on the raw materials that go into electric cars are going to be far better than the electric car producers. Invest Talk across America and around the world. Your participation makes it unique. 888-99-CHART. This podcast is produced by KPP Financial. Steve Peasley, President. KPP Financial. Independent thinking, shared success. And now today's podcast. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Monday, January 10th, 2021, 20, excuse me, 2022 edition of Invest Talk. Gotta get used to that now. And we've completed the first trading week of the new year and just started a new one, and it was a, kind of a turnaround day. But uh, we're gonna dig into the stories of the day and some more perspective that can help guide you in making better money decisions, better financial decisions, better investment decisions. So that's why I'm here. I'm ready to help you take that next step in your own version of financial freedom. And I'm going to operate with my mission statement, which is always independent thinking and shared success. So that's my assurance that whether I'm talking about a stock you might call in about, uh, a particular asset class, a, a mutual fund, an ETF, whatever it is, I am here to give you the pros and cons because everything has a pro and a con, has drawbacks and, and risks and, and, and also has rewards. And so I am here to present it all without bias and give you the facts as I see them in front of me and using my 20 plus years of investment experience. So I'm Justin Klein. Of course, I encourage you to reach out to me and interact with me right now during our live stream program from four to five Pacific time. Or if you're listening after hours, no big deal. I know a lot of you are. You can leave a message on our Invest Talk voice bank. Either way, the number never changes. It's 888-99-CHART. So let's get right to our first listener question now. Oh, let's go to, actually, we're gonna go to Jacob in California. He wants to talk about mutual funds. Hey, Justin, how you doing? Good, good. So I just found out that my employer offers a brokerage link account where okay. I am gonna have more options. Um, and I'm looking to make about a 15% um, position in telecommunications. And I was wondering if you could compare WCO uh, versus IYZ, the expense ratios look a little expensive, but very similar. And I was just wondering if you could uh, give me your opinion. What was that first one? EWCO, it's a uh, equal weighted fund. Ah, gotcha. Okay. So you're looking at the Invesco S&P 500 equal weighted communication services plus index. So First thing, I like that it's equal weighted. 
I always look at the, uh, these things. Uh, I always like that you have ownership of smaller companies. And over the long term, that means above market returns. Small caps outperform large caps uh, over any length of time. And so it's good for, it's good. I like that. Um, so if they're, if they're, what do you call it? Their fees are similar. Sorry, I'm just bringing this up here, EWCO. So IYZ, which is the iShares US Telecommunications ETF, that has a expense ratio of 0.42%. And the S&P equal weighted has 0.40. So the equal weight is actually cheaper. Um, so if I'm picking one or the other, I'm definitely going to go with equal weight. You get a little bit less on the expense ratio and more exposure to smaller cap names, which will give you better returns long term. So uh, are you willing to take that risk, though? That's the question, because EWC is going to probably be a little bit higher risk because you have smaller cap names in there. Uh, but if you're looking longer term, this would be the better way to go. Great. Thanks for the call. That was EWCO, the Invesco S&P 500 Equal Weight Communication Services ETF. Now, my focus point today is based on the story behind this headline, what the Phillips curve says about soaring inflation in the COVID economy. Now, the Phillips curve, it's an economic concept describing the relationship between inflation and employment and that there's an inverse relationship typically between unemployment and inflation. So we're going to dig into how accurate is that? Does it apply in this economy? And has it ever really applied? Remember, these are all economic theories. Uh, and there's some truth to it, but how much truth, I think, is something we'll dig into. Next, the earnings season is coming up here. And I want to dig into what to expect uh, and, more importantly, what companies will be expecting for 2022 and what their playbooks will be. Also, a new year means a lot of resolutions. Well, what are most people's financial resolutions? We're going to look at that. And then lastly, banks are starting to lend a bit, a bit more, especially in the credit card realm. And what does that mean for the economy as a whole? I think there's some perspective there that mm, is a bit counterintuitive in some ways, but a lot of people don't know, uh, which is that banks create most of the money in the economy. So we're going to look at that. But let's look at the let's take a look at the market today. The S and P was down about seven points, but well, well off the lows from early this morning. You had, let's see, the NASDAQ closed up, COMPQ, yeah, closed up, that closed up seven points. That was even worse this morning, uh, but you had a nice kind of snapback, turnaround day, closed, all the major indices closed near the highs of the day, and you had the 10-year, which was up another couple basis points earlier this morning, closed near the lows of the day, only up about one basis point, and so... You might be seeing at least a near-term top in in rates, and you might get a. I think you're going to get a bounce in the major indices. Um, what we're kind of expecting for the first half of this year is I expect new highs in the S and P. I do. 
Now, that's probably going to happen over the next month or two. Um, and you're going to likely, as the Fed truly reduces QE, maybe goes into QT, where they're reducing their balance sheet, maybe they're raising interest rates, whatever they're going to do, probably in the March meeting, um, will we'll, we'll be fairly aggressive. But I think that will put the market on its back foot uh, late in the first quarter, second quarter time frame. And I think you'll continue to see a rotation out of value and in, out, of, out of growth and into value. Doesn't mean you can't have rallies though. And this looks to be a bit of a, a time where you're going to get uh, rallies in a little bit of rally in the growth side of the market, which will probably take the broad indices uh, to new highs. So that's kind of what uh, what we're expecting in the uh, short to medium term. Remember, the first half of this year is likely to be more challenging. But that doesn't mean that, oh, you get out of the market. No, this is more of a rotation market where you're, you're going to find good opportunities. And it's about positioning your portfolio accordingly. And that's what we're here to help you with. So we're already into our second week of 2022 trading, and I'll bet you have finance and investment questions for me. So give me a call at 888-99-CHART. This is Invest Talk. No two investors have an identical portfolio. So each investor will have different questions. I guess I'm wondering how I should kind of diversify. If the questions specific to your portfolio aren't being asked, your situation is not addressed. And I wanted your thoughts on the cannabis market. Steve Peasley and Justin Klein take InvestTalk listener questions each weekday during the program live stream in the 4 to 5 p.m. hour Pacific time. The InvestTalk Voice Bank never closes, so your questions are always welcome. As a newer investor, my question concerns positions. You have the right to remain silent, but why would you when anything you ask will be used to help you create your financial freedom? I think it'll probably go higher. And so I would keep a tight stop on it. So don't forget to call InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART. Steve Peasley and Justin Klein are ready to answer your finance and investment questions. Call Invest Talk 888-99-CHART. Hey, Steve and Justin. I was wondering if you guys could just take a look at CNR and let me know if it's a good stock to get into right now or if it's not. Thank you, guys. Our, this is Cornerstone, Cornerstone Building Brands. CNR is the symbol. They manufacture a portfolio of exterior residential building products here in the United States. Clearly, their products are in demand as uh, housing is in demand, more housing units. And their earnings went from $0.04 cents in 2020 to $1.87 in 2021 expected. Remember, they're Still haven't reported for the fourth quarter, so we don't have that official number. But that's the full year expectation. This year, expected to make two dollars and forty nine cents. So clearly, they're they're doing something right in the near term. Now they did issue a bunch of shares back in two thousand nineteen. I don't like that, but that's been flat. 
Uh, overall, their profitability tends to be pretty solid, uh, positive cash flow. So I like all of that. Hmm. Uh, the chart is is fine. It's been in consolidation phase, even though their earnings have been on the rise. Uh, I'm going to give this overall a thumbs up because uh, $2.50 a share expect their earnings this year. It is pretty cheap trading about seven times earnings, six or seven times forward looking earnings. That's very cheap. And then on top of that, you have continued low supply of housing units. And so their products are likely to continue to be in demand. So I'm going to give this one overall a thumbs up. That's CNR Cornerstone Building Brands. Now, my focus point today is based on the story behind this headline what the Phillips curve says about soaring inflation in the COVID economy. Now, what is the Phillips curve? What is the Phillips curve? Well, this is started by who was the A.W. Phillips. That's what it was. And this is from a 1958 paper, 1958. This is how long ago the Phillips curve was kind of thought up. And what it is, is an economic concept describing the inverse relationship between inflation and unemployment. So if inflation or if unemployment goes up, inflation tends to go down. If uh, unemployment goes down, inflation tends to go up. That's the theory. Falling unemployment leads to rising inflation and vice versa. Now, the idea is that as more people are hired, that translates into more money in their wallets so they can go out and spend. And what do firms do when they're getting more business? They tend to hire more scale up production, scale up their capacity, and they have to boost wages to get more workers. And that's kind of that upward spiral uh, in inflation, as well as downward spiral in unemployment. That's that general relationship. However, in this economy, and even pre-COVID, the whole Phillips curve idea has been upended. Now, post financial crisis, you had the unemployment rates go to 50 year lows, hit 3.5% at one point. But over the 10 years post financial crisis, up until the COVID crisis, you had inflation averaging 1.7%. So you didn't get that reaction from inflation. And the question is, why is that? Is the Phillips curve broken? And I'm going to say, absolutely. Now, some people will say, well, the Phillips curve really was never proven. It was more of a, a theory uh, that worked most of the time. But as you saw globalization rise and technology push down inflation and Leftover labor slack wasn't really uh, affecting the economy the way economists had expected. And this was why the Phillips curve continues to be not a good use, uh, not a good way to guide policy, even though the Fed is kind of still using it to guide policy. And especially in today's world where there's supply constraints. Remember, this whole idea is about demand, where 
if unemployment is falling, more people are making more money and demand is ramping up. Well, what happens when supply is now disrupted? Whether that's because of ESG or was because of, of, of uh, um, constraints within the global supply chain, etc. And so this is why I don't think Phillips Curve is that great. It's because there's too many inputs into how the economy works, especially in a more globalized world. And that's why the Phillips Curve is kind of broken and was kind of always broken. Now we're heading into a break, and I'm sure you have finance investment questions. So give me a call at 888-99-CHART. Each day, Invest Talk listeners submit their finance and investment questions via phone or email. Would you like your question to be put near the top of the list? Just take a minute or two to leave a review and rating for Invest Talk at iTunes. And be sure to include a brief question with your iTunes review comments. Now, when people take the time to leave an Invest Talk, Invest Talk podcast review on iTunes, we'd like to thank them for the courtesy by getting to their questions quickly. So here are some questions from iTunes reviewers. G. Valor says, have a question about INMD. I bought it recently, but it is declining. Now, should I keep it or buy more? And this is an Israeli seller of radio frequency devices used in minimally and non-invasive cosmetic procedures. In mode. Interesting. Okay. And earnings are expected to be $2 a share next year. Or excuse me, this year, 2020, $2.07. And this is in a pretty strong downtrend now. And this is or was a high multiple stock. The question is, is the multiple now more reasonable now that it's come down? Let's see, it's 52-week high was at $99.27. It's at 54 and change now, so down 45%. Broke its 200-day moving average a couple last week. And... I will say this looks like it is ready for a bounce. However, I would probably be trimming or selling on that bounce. So do with that what what you will. I don't know how much belief you have in their their products long term. Uh, and that would be my main question is, are you just chasing a, a story or do you really love their products and think they have long-term staying power? Because the, the good thing is this is a profitable name. Trailing 12 months, their free cash was $161.3 million, but it's still only a, still a $4.5 billion market cap. And that's my issue here, is it's trading at a price-to-sales ratio of 15 times, even after dropping 45%. That's expensive. So I like the, the trend of the business. I just think even after this drop, uh, it, it's probably overvalued. Now, remember, these high multiple names most of these high multiple names, and I'm just going based on history of overvalued companies in the past, especially if you go back and look at charts from 2000, a lot of these names dropped 80 to 90% from their high. So 45% is just the start. It's half. Uh, and so a bottom in this would be somewhere closer to 20 to $30. And I think that is a reasonable price uh, based on the, the current uh 
the current valuation or current numbers and the current trends because it's growing, but I don't expect this growth to be uh, that that consistently strong. So um, I like the company, but more in the 20 to 30 range rather than the 50 range. All right. Thanks for the review. Now, Spencer from Athens says, I have been bullish on Playboy for a while now and know you guys have too. My price target for the company is near $50 mark. However, it seems to be really struggling these last couple of months. I'm wondering if this is due to the anticipation of the Fed raising rates and continue to throttle on QE or if there's an underlying issue I'm missing with the company. Company. Um, the answer is no. This is, has a lot to do with cross-ownership uh, within high-risk high funds. There are a lot of hedge funds that are struggling right now uh, who are, are betting on cloud names and, and just uh, those names that have a lot of potential upside. And Playboy is one of them. And what happens in when, when you're investing in these type of um, in companies that still have a, a ways to go, that are still working through their, their growth phase, uh, and you have uh, sell-off in the entire sector, even if their valuation, which I think the Playboy valuation is is still uh, is actually very cheap uh, now that it's down in the in the mid twenties, um, I think that that is uh, you're getting a lot of selling from those hedge funds that are deleveraging. A lot of them use a lot of leverage. And so it's pushing down um, names like Playboy. But if you look at the underlying business, they continue to execute on their plan. They have a dozen initiatives to uh, grow revenue uh, using their, their their intellectual property. And I think there's still a lot of upside for Playboy. So I'm going to give uh, this one a hold. Now let's talk to let's go to another iTunes question and says this is from Commander Z Dog. My question is this: What does more aggressive investing look like? Are there any books, strategies, or resources you could recommend uh, I, I could use to learn what more aggressive means? I'm 25 years old. This is a great question because aggressive is a very broad term. Aggressive is different for everybody. This is one reason why we use our, our risk questionnaire to try to get a sense of what type of volatility people are comfortable with and then compare that to the investments that they are investing in. And aggressive can mean very different things. Now, when you're investing in all equities, I'm always going to say you're aggressive. Now, there are shades of that aggressiveness. If you're in large cap, dividend paying, uh, blue chip companies, that's a lower level of aggressiveness than buying into high growth tech companies or oil and commodity names that tend to be very volatile. So it's not about being more aggressive in and of itself. It's good risk versus reward, meaning... You can make you you can make fantastic aggressive investments and terrible aggressive investments. Your job is to make smart, good risk versus reward aggressive investments if you're an aggressive investor. So you're 25, continue to learn. Don't get aggressive unless you understand why and what you're doing. Now we're heading into a break. I'm ready to take your questions live at 888-99 chart. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. 
AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's Attack Resistance Platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E. Dot com, HackerOne.com Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. No two portfolios are alike, and every investor has a unique set of circumstances. The best way to get answers that correspond with your situation is for you to submit your questions to Steve Peasley and Justin Klein. The 24-hour listener line never closes. So don't forget to call InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART. Hi, it's Matt from South Florida. I have a question about Callaway Golf, ticker symbol ELY. On Wednesday's program, Justin had talked a little bit about the reasons that he did not like the Top Golf acquisition. And uh, rarely does this happen, but I did think to myself immediately that maybe Justin might be looking at this one the wrong way. Top Golf, uh, unlike investing in golf courses, which is a bad idea. Top Golf attracts many, many people who are not golfers, uh, wives, etc., who really have been introduced to it during the pandemic and I think are going to continue to go to it. It's a lot of fun socializing, drinks and food, and you can uh, hit a golf ball while you're doing all that. So knowing that, and if Justin had maybe a different opinion on Top Golf, that it might be more successful and not just a uh, pandemic-related success, and uh, would have more of, a, of an upside, would you adjust your buy to maybe something in the low 20s rather than the high teens? Uh, appreciate your comments. Appreciate you looking at it again. And I'll listen uh, for your feedback. All right. Great question. Uh, well, I do understand uh, Top Golf, and I think it is a, a, a good, interesting strategic acquisition for Callaway. And this is ELY Callaway Golf, who, who bought Top Golf. And I think their whole goal is to, like you said, get people in, have some drinks, have some food, uh, mess around, try to hit some golf balls, and maybe turn those people who weren't golfers onto golf. And I think that will 
probably probably be successful in some way. I don't have any data. I'd have to look into that. Um, but it's it's typically a business that isn't that that profitable. Um, and so, you know, in the entertainment space, uh, there's a lot of <clears throat> alternatives uh, for that. And it's a, there's a low barrier to entry for other uh, companies to kind of do similar things. And so, you know, do they overpay for it? First off, typically these acquisitions they do. Uh, and then if you look at the, you look at the earnings expectations, made $6.78 in 2020. Last year, they're supposed to make for the full year $1.70. This year, they're only supposed to make $0.67 cents a share. And analysts continue to downgrade their earnings expectations. So there's just too much murkiness here. Uh, I'd really need some longer-term data. How many people are they turning into to golfers? How profitable really is the uh, is the model, uh, the Top Golf model, and will that be the main driver of their businesses as opposed to Callaway sells clubs? That's mainly their business: golf balls and clubs and accessories. So you can have a difference of opinion that Top Golf was a great acquisition that it's going to be very profitable and that's going to be the main driver of earnings. Analysts aren't saying that yet because even for, like I said, for the full year, they're supposed to make 67 cents a share this year. That's the lowest level since 2017. So why is that? That's what I really want to know. Now let's dig into earnings. Speaking of earnings, you now have... Earnings season coming up actually starts later this week. JP Morgan, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, they report on Friday. You have Delta Airlines, they report on Thursday. You're going to get some sense of how they're handling the, the surge in COVID cases. And then next week, you have transportation company, JB Hunt, Procter & Gamble, Baker Hughes, so oil industry service uh, sector. You'll get uh, some information there. And analysts... Estimate the profits for companies in the S&P will have risen 22% in the fourth quarter from a year earlier. Now, that sounds a lot, and that's higher than long-term averages, but much lower than previous few quarters. In fact, for the first, second quarter of 2021, obviously that is a tough COVID comp because that was where COVID shutdown was when, in 2020. S&P earnings grew 91%. So you're going to start to see a more normalized earning picture. In fact, for 2022, earnings are expected to grow 9.4%, closer to longer-term averages. For 2021, full year, it's supposed to be 45%. So you can see that sharp deceleration. That's fine, as long as we kind of level out high single digits, low teens. I think that will be good for the overall market. Now, what you have to understand, though, is that typically the farther out you are from an earnings announcement, the more optimistic analysts are. So if analysts are expecting 9.4% earnings for the full year, don't be shocked if that comes more into the single digits mark by the end of the year. Now, 2019, the last full year before COVID, earnings were up, actually, they were down 0.1% for the entire year. And what will be most important is guidance. And it comes when it comes to 
earnings for the full year of what companies are saying. Remember, it's not as much about what happened last quarter as what is expected to happen this quarter and the year ahead. That's what markets pay the most attention to. So how are they going to pass along rising expenses for employees, for raw materials, etc.? Now, net profits for the S&P hit 13.1% in the second quarter of last year, the highest level going back to 2008. But it, by the fourth quarter, expected to fall to 11.9%. So how are how is that guidance going to look for the full year? And it's going to be tricky for companies because they don't know how inflation is going to evolve, how labor supply is going to evolve. And the stakes are even highest for the tech sector, now trading at 27.1 times forward-looking earnings. So that may seem not that high for the tech sector. The overall market's at 20.7. The energy sector, trading at about 12 times. The financial sector, trading about 15 times. So although, although financials and, and energy have outperformed tech as of late, there's still a lot of potential catching up to do. So that's the earning picture. And we'll see what guidance looks like. And uh, it'll be very important, especially in a time when rates are rising, multiples are coming down, and you're going to be reliant on earnings to keep multiples up. Otherwise, you're going to have a lot of multiple contraction. Now, let's grab another caller question. This came in earlier from Virginia. Hi, guys. Thanks for your podcast. This is Sam from Virginia. I have a question on the gold miners GDX. If I recall correctly, Steve was sort of negative, and Justin has been positive for a good long while. I have a loss in this position that seems to be continuing to hit all-time events, 52-week lows. Hold, buy more, or sell. Would appreciate the opinion. Thanks. Bye. Well, I'm Justin, so I'm still, I've said this, um, I like to look at longer term charts. And you had a breakout in gold and gold miners in uh, early 2000. And you've just had a really a textbook flag pattern, consolidation pattern, still above the 200 week, 200, 200 week moving average, still kind of right at where we were uh, pre COVID. And so overall, you've just had a, a retrace. Um, you know, you bought bought it higher, um, like a lot of people did. Um, and I think uh, your call, and I've seen a lot of calls like this, uh, shows the sentiment in the space. People are worried. Um, and typically, when people are most worried, that is when you want to be a buyer. When people are most optimistic, that's not really when you want to be jumping in. Um, I'm a contrarian in that way, but uh, the, the that, that plays out uh, oftentimes in the markets where people people just uh, chase. Uh, and so uh, typically the best sectors uh, in the previous year are, are not the best sectors in the upcoming year and vice versa. So the miners with uh, the markets up, they were not the greatest sector. <laughs> they were one of the worst sectors uh, last year. Uh, but I do expect them to be one of the better sectors this year. So I'm still saying hold. 8899 chart, 8899242789. Let's go grab another caller question now. Hey, Stephen Justin, this is Elena from Florida. I'm calling about Lucid Groups 
ticker is LCID. It's a software electric vehicle company. And I'm just curious to find out what your evaluation would be on this company. And if you could also tell us some information about the short interest that is on this ticker also. Thank you. All right. This is Lucid Group, and this is a new electric vehicle company. Very interesting electric vehicle company. I, I like uh, some the look of some of their models, and uh, looks exciting. But what I will say, which is uh, <clears throat> what I will say about the space, I've said many times, is that the best profits are going to come from the inputs to these vehicles. So, batteries. Uh, copper, um, lithium, etc. <clears throat> if you're trying to play the EV space, I think there's much better value, much better opportunity there. Because the car market is extremely, extremely competitive. And even if it's if a car is driven by a battery, an electric motor or an internal combustion engine, the rest of the, the car is basically the same. And so it's going to come to manufacturing prowess, scale. Remember, this is a very capital-intensive business and a very competitive, very cyclical business. So they're very going to, going to be poor businesses overall. So right now, there's just a lot of hype in the lucids of the world. So I think it's drastically overvalued, $68 billion, $69 billion market cap still. So it's to lose a dollar for next year. And understandable. They're, they're kind of still getting up and going. But even when they get up and going, are they going to be able to grow into a $69 billion market cap? I'll tell you this, very, very unlikely. Ford is at a $95 billion market cap, and they've been around for 100 plus years, and they're profitable, and they're crushing uh, their, their launch into the, the EV space. So uh, Luce is just extremely, extremely overvalued. Uh, now... Short interest, 0.9 days. Let's see. Uh, that's about 50-day average daily volume is 87 million shares. That's crazy. Okay, so you're talking about around 80 million shares short, and its float is 500 million. So, yeah, that's about um, yeah, about 20% of their shares are short, 18%. On the high side. Could it be a short squeeze? Sure. But that's the only way to play this is a potential short squeeze. Uh, and I wouldn't really bet on that. I don't think it's a good bet. Uh, and I think this is just a, a better to leave alone. I wouldn't touch it either way. Now we've started a new year and you've probably gone through the process of checking your portfolio, making sure it is aligned with our current reality aligned with your goals, aligned with your risk tolerance level. You've done all that, right? Well, if you haven't, or you don't know how to do that, you need help. I encourage you to reach out to myself or Steve Peasley at our company, KPP Financial. We're based in Irvine, California. And that's where we practice parallel investing. We provide unbiased guidance, both, both on and off air. And we invest right alongside our clients. That's what parallel investing is. So if you want to take advantage of our free portfolio review assessment via telephone or go to meeting, you can do that. Just reach out to us at investtalk.com or call our KPP financial office in Irvine at 800-557-5461. 
we'd love to have a conversation with you, see how we can help in any way. Once again, that's 800-557-5461. Next up, we'll go back to the Invest Talk Voice Bank. Remember, the phone lines never close. It's 888-99-CHART. The Invest Talk Voice Bank never closes. I have a question for you about Amazon. So your questions keep coming. Question about PE ratios. And that's okay because Steve Peasley and Justin Klein specialize in unbiased guidance. If I'm looking at a dividend company, I'm looking for consistency of earnings and dividends. Your standard daily chart typically goes back one year. Steve and Justin are fearless. So don't forget to call Invest Talk. 888-99-CHART. Hi, I was calling about PayPal. I wanted to know if now is a good time to purchase it. I own a small amount. Just wanted to know if now is a good time to buy more. Thank you for your help. All right, this is PayPal, and this is one of the high-flying, high-multiple tech companies. Still valued at $215 billion in its market cap, down 41% from its 52-week high. So as you can tell, it's kind of caught in caught up in the sell-off of a lot of the high multiple tech names, and it is in a consistent downtrend, down $4.65 today. I will say, as with uh, most of the market in the tech space, it, it closed um, near the high of the day, but uh, not at the high of the day, which a lot of the indices did. So there was some definitely relative weakness there with uh, the NASDAQ up on the day, and this still down uh, about 2.5% or so. Earnings expect to be $5.23 this year up from $4.61 last year, but that's that number is being consistently downgraded. Uh, and that's a worry. It's still trading about 41 times forward earnings, uh, revenue growth decelerated at 13%, earnings only 4% growth last quarter. And uh, no, I, I just don't think this is at a level where it's it's interesting yet. I still think there's a lot more downside I wouldn't think about buying this until about 130. It's at 182 now. That's where there's kind of major support, 136 or so, so mid 130s. But I actually don't love the value until you get below 100. Sorry, that's where I would be interested in it. Um, so between 100 and uh, 135, I think that's the area that you want to get involved with PayPal. This is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein. And we have one goal here is to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom. And our work continues after this final break. So get your questions in now at 888 chart You've got a portfolio to grow and protect, and this is no time to lose focus. So get your finance and investment questions together and call Steve Peasley and Justin Klein. They're ready with their unbiased answers. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Now, Steve and I have said many times that we appreciate our diverse audience. And in fact, we receive caller questions from across America and around the world. In fact, let's take a question now. This time from a listener in Singapore, we're going to talk to Pam looking at Brookfield Asset Management. Do you own it or looking to buy it? Yes, I own it. Thank you for taking my call. Of course. Of I've course. owned it since uh, 2020 and it's gone up about 80% and I'm wondering mm -hmm. if it's, it seems to be floundering now. I'm wondering if it might be a good time to sell. 
Well, we own Brookfield Asset Management for our clients as well. So we've owned it for a while and it's done well too. Uh, but we are, are are fine with it. It's trading at uh, it's trading supposed to make a three dollars and eight cents next year, and still trading below twenty times earnings, uh, forward earnings, which is, to us is um, still still undervalued. Uh, now it's a lot closer to value than it was a year or two ago. Uh, I will I will say that. But on this recent right. pullback, we. I, I'll give you an example. Today, I bought four new clients um, on, on the down day. So I don't think it is uh, time to cut bait yet. Uh, I think this is also a bit of a play on carbon credits. And I think the value of carbon credits are going to continue to go up. And so we really like uh, Brookfield Asset Management. So I would continue to hold. Now, uh, this is going to go through a consolidation period, possibly. But it would be a name that I would be buying more on dips as opposed to trying to unload. Thanks for the call. Thank you very much. No problem. Thanks for calling from Singapore. Now, an estimated 29.2 million general purpose credit cards were issued to creditors with credit scores below 660 last year. That's up from 20.4 million in 2020 and 26.3 million in 2019. And even subprime. So those are, are kind of fair borrowers. If your credit score is below 660, if it's below 620, you are considered subprime. And they issued, lenders issued 11.6 million to those subprime lenders in the first nine months of 2021. That's up 43.5% from the year earlier. And spending limits on those cards also rose 45%. So not only are uh, banks issuing a lot more credit cards, but they're increasing their limits overall. And this is a, a dramatic shift that from right in the early months of the pandemic where uh, they were banks were tightening lending standards. They were locking riskier borrowers out of the market. And they were expecting a lot more defaults, but there was a lot of government spend, uh, spending and stimulus. And that pushed down credit card balances and kept kept there from being a lot of defaults. And we are finally kind of back to 2019 levels of in the credit card market. And this is a good thing for the overall economy. Remember, banks create most of the money in the economy. Everyone talks about the Fed and QE, etc. Uh-uh. The, the, the Fed is just QE is just an asset swap with the banks. In order for that money to get out there, they need to go and lend. And one way they lend is through credit cards. Now, the issue, though, is that people aren't borrowing as much. In fact, balances balances are down. Credit card balances remain below pre-pandemic levels. $808.6 billion for general purpose and store cards as of November. That's compared to $913 billion in January of 2020. So we're still down over, 100, over 10%. What does this mean for banks? Lower profits. They earn interest on, the, on, that, uh, on that book of business. And so that's one reason why they're expanding their credit. They're saying, hey, the government has people's backs. They're not going to, uh, if, if there's a big problem in the economy, they're going to go and do government transfer payments, unemployment benefits, stimulus packages, etc. And so why not go allow riskier borrowers to, to borrow, 
charge them higher interest rates, get their overall credit uh, credit card business bigger, and earn higher fees and higher profits. And so that's what you're seeing here. And this is an overall a good thing for the economy in the near term. Uh, the issue is that once again, people aren't people are still making large monthly payments, and they're not taking out they're not using those credit cards as aggressively as I think the banks want. So that's why they're just giving out a lot more in hopes of growing that business. Well, I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening. We encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads. Now over 37.5 million. Thanks to you. You can get yours anytime on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review. And if you leave a question with your iTunes review, we will prioritize your answer. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them specifically. Nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell securities. Such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein Pavlis Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor, which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461.